Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. So he started telling me, I need more help. I need more help. Well, the only thing more that could be done was going somewhere to a facility because we were doing everything we could do from an outpatient standpoint. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. And even his therapist started saying, he's crying for help. We need to get him to a facility. We started that process in December and it took hours and hours and hours of phone calls and searching and to find a, a place that I would feel comfortable taking my underage child with this disorder that he was having, a psychotic disorder. In part two of Bri's story, she continues sharing how her career as a pediatrician collides with her instincts as a mother of a child who has a mental disorder. This episode picks up with a decision to go to an inpatient facility and the realities behind what it means to gain access to quality care her child needed. If you have not listened to part one, please stop and go back to episode 41 for the complete context. Here is part two of Bry's story. So the, the idea of doing that anywhere is extremely scary, but then going and asking professionals for the options and realizing how incredibly limited the options are for any type of inpatient or even partial hospitalization. When you realize how limited your options are, it, it feels, um, it's overwhelming, I'll say. Thankfully, um, when we finally, literally after over a month of him saying, I need more support, I need more support. And I knew that the worst thing would just be to go wherever. I mean, there are places that will take adolescents with mental health disorders. But when you start really looking at the caregivers in those places, I see children in my office who have come just left those mental health facilities who showed up at the ER at their local ER and they were having either suicidal thoughts or, you know, realize their parents realizing they were having a drug problem or whatever. And they get put in an inpatient facility for three, four or five days. And I see them back. It's never better. It, they may be in a, on a medicine that will eventually make it better, but it's traumatic. It often is very disjointed as far as what they went in for and what they're coming out with there may or may not be the appropriate aftercare. I'm certainly not their aftercare. I'm just their touch point to figure out what happened and then try to figure out where to send them or how to get them plugged in to what they need. Um, And so I know what most of those quick inpatient facilities are like from the child's perspective. And I knew that I wasn't sending him to any old emergent place and thankfully he wasn't suicidal thankfully we weren't on a time crunch that we had to do it right that minute I don't know what I would have done I don't 
But when we got to the point of needing him put somewhere because he said, I need more support, I need more help. After really over a month of looking and calling and looking and calling and looking and calling, I knew of a place that had an outpatient clinic specifically for late teens with psychosis. The outpatient clinic, we had been trying to kind of show up there and get put in there just from for more education, more understanding. But I knew they had an adolescent unit at the associated hospital. So we drove five hours to that ER. Because wow. I said, if he's going to get put in somewhere, it will be there. Yep. So we, and he was on board, thankfully. So we got up and showed up at that ER at about 9 a.m. And I basically said, I think he needs to be admitted. He definitely needs to be evaluated. And he went through the ER process. Um, I was already warned that it would maybe take 72 hours for him to get a bed if they determined he should be admitted. About 4 p.m., we got there about 9 a.m. Because he was a mental health patient, he was put very much like a prison in a He had to take all his clothes off, no phone, no laces. You know, they treat you as if you're suicidal or homicidal. And he was stripped down, put in a room that had double locked doors to get in. The nurse's station in that waiting holding area was locked. It was in a basement, so there were no lights. I mean, no um, windows, it was all artificial lights. The other kids in there, some were screaming. Some were rocking. Some were just walking around, playing games, acting like they were at home. He was petrified at that point. He realized, I asked for more help. This, And I kept having to tell him this is a whole day. Thankfully, I was able to just stay with him the whole time. I couldn't have my phone either. I mean, we were both. But I was able to stay with him. I did not tell him that they told me it would take up to three days to get him into a room. And when I realized we were in that space till about 4 p.m. before he was ever evaluated by a um, psychiatrist, I realized we weren't going to make it for three days if we had to stay down there. Mm -hmm. It was um, kind of his worst fears of being trapped, claustrophobic, Mm. the paranoia starts to kick in. Um, All the mistrust started to kick in. And by the end, and he mostly slept. We just, you know, just by stress was just sleeping. But by the time evening came and he realized, I'm just waiting. He said, this is making me worse. And it probably was. It was probably making him a lot worse in the short term. But I felt like we can't, now we can't turn back. We've got to push through. So that first night in that holding area, he was in a, again, it's a padded room. I mean, it's there's the furniture is like lead and it's round rubber corners and very thin little sheet blankets um when they told him they had to turn the tvs off and lights out and children in other little pods or rooms you could hear them calling out for their moms crying out some were having fits and raging and nurses having to come in and restrain and you could hear all that going on and i'm as my son says um neuronormal (laughs) um it i was having a hard time kind of pushing it out and he's rocking with a pillow on his head 
and saying, you've got to get me out of here. You've got to get me out of here. So we started reading. I said, the only thing we can do is read a book. And they would let us have a book. That was about the only thing we could have was a book. And someone had recommended to him a book by Ellen Sachs, who is a author. Um, well, she's an attorney and she has schizophrenia. And she wrote a book called The Center Cannot Hold about her experience of schizophrenia and um, treatment. And now she's a UCLA professor and started a mental health um, legal defense whole education unit there and just amazing, amazing person. And that was the book we had because it had been recommended by one of his therapists. So we started, I just started reading it to him. I said, do you want to read it? He said, I can't read it. Just read it out loud. Well, we start reading it and I'm reading about her early childhood and then symptoms of when the schizophrenia started showing up and how, what she experienced. And several times he, I thought, wasn't even maybe listening, just kind of crying and rocking at times. And, and then he would reach over and grab my arm and say, I could have written that. Mm. As I'm reading this, just such scary stuff about what Ellen Sachs has experienced before she knew what was going on with her. And he said, Mom, I've said almost those words to you. Like, it was very much his experience of mm. these thoughts that were so betraying and your mind betraying you he's hearing all this and i said do you you know several times i said do you want me to stop reading is it in, is it upsetting you to hear all this and he said no it's comforting because it it's putting into words it's mm. making it real and i said you know she's writing this because she's been treated and she's successful and she's able to now look back and go through it I said so I feel like it's hopeful that she could have even written all this but that got us through that first night reading that for him felt like an anchor I think and um, by all I can say is by the grace of God we were able to get a room the next morning because he basically looked at me and said I cannot stay here another night and I knew he couldn't I knew he could not stay there another night in that holding area so by the time we um, were told we were going to get a room in the ups, I say we, he <laughs> is going to get a room in the upstairs in the actual unit, um, he was wanting to go home. Mm. He was done. Yeah. Said, I, I feel better. I'm great now. <laughs> Just take me home. Um, get me out of here. And that's when it became hard because then I had to say, no, we're here for a reason you did ask to come and you're we're doing this on your recommendation but um now that we're here we're gonna see it through and take advantage of it so um every time almost that we saw him during those couple of weeks he was there my husband and i went back and forth a few times because it was again five hours away um he begged us to take him home and he did great with being there as far as participating and sharing with the doctors. I feel like as honestly as he could, what he had been experiencing and they did change around his medicine, but he desperately wanted to go home. And we, of course, had to finish what we were there for and get How him to How hard was his that? Table. It was very hard, very hard. I knew. I have no idea what it's like to 
have to leave your child in a hospital when they're saying, take me home. Yeah, begging, begging. And and I, he truly did think that the best thing would be to go home. And I thought maybe it would and maybe it wouldn't. But I also knew we were there and this was the best option for where he could be. If there was any other place he needed or could be or needed to be hospitalized, this would this was the best option for helping him acutely. Thankfully, at this point, we had good follow up. I knew coming. We are therapists and doctors that we had used to get there. were going to be waiting on us when we got out. But I also knew he was at such a low point before we went in that if we went home and things mm. were worse, we'd be in huge trouble. And right. we might not have the luxury of being able to wait to drive five hours to get somewhere. We might have to go to a more acute um, or closer place for acute care if he got to the verge of maybe being suicidal, which was a real option if his mind didn't feel clearer and or just doing something that hurt himself and unintentionally. So I was had to just weigh those, I guess, pros and cons of staying, even though he might resent and even be angry at me for a very, very long time that I made him stay or we made him stay um, versus what's the worst that could happen if we go home and he's not Mm. ready. You know, he had already told us for weeks before that he needed more and more help. I knew that there there wasn't a in between. It was this or back to what we were already doing. And clearly that had not quite been enough. Um, so yeah, it was gut wrenching, but yet it was, it came down to just a decision of what's the safest for him, regardless of how he feels about it right now. And then you just hope and pray that your child sees you were trying to do what would help them (laughs) the most potentially, um, versus something that could be extremely harmful, which would be going home in the state he was in prior or worse. You have shared many times in our discussions in our group um, through your faith Mm -hmm. as you have dealt with this. Um, And I say that and going to form a question through that lens a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, when you mentioned about how your son thought he could take care of it by himself mm-hmm. and he wanted control of it mm-hmm. and then you realize he had to let go of control in order mm-hmm. to get help physicians want control mm-hmm. because you've mm-hmm. been educated and empowered to help the people and then moms want control of their to take care of their children <sighs> to keep them safe and mm-hmm. did your faith help you release some of that control Yes, ultimately. Um, you know, at first, the prayers are uh, maybe more along the lines of help him, help him, help him. And that prayer's still there. And then maybe more help me, help him. Hmm. Help me, show me what to do to help him, show me what to do to help him. 
and that's still there. But I'm realizing now that as obvious as it seems, I'm part of his help, but I'm not his savior and I'm not his, ultimately I'm not, I won't make him well. And you've, I don't, that seems obvious, but when you've raised a child from the breast and you've never needed to not be one, and again, we're at the age where we were not going to be one. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was a separation that was happening. But with all this, almost in my mind, we were having to be closer because we were trying to figure this out together. And there was an increased dependency when maybe there should, well, when there definitely should have been an increasing independency. But because of the, the health, mental health need, in my mind, we were needing to be more dependent um, as a parent-child, but yet that's not what a 17-year-old needs or wants ultimately. So navigating how to be a help, but not fix it and let him become independent in the ways he needs to be to, to help take care of himself and get to where he needs to be in front of people who can help medically, but also trust his creator to be there with him no matter where I am in the picture became, a, it felt like ripping my heart in half kind of knowing I have to trust that he can become well. Yes, I have a part to play, but it's not on my shoulders. And I'm, I'm not responsible for his becoming well. And it, that sounds like letting go. It's It's not. It's a very almost tortured process of just realizing what I cannot control. As his mom, even as a physician, though I would say this realm is so beyond and outside of my medical knowledge <laughs> that letting go as the mom and letting go as someone who can fix it of the part I can't fix is was and is a constant kind of dissection and and working through that over probably years and years and years down the road even is going to be um, something I just have to struggle with daily of what's my place and what is what do I need to let go of so the prayers become more of, let me do exactly what I need to be doing, no more and no less. And figuring out what that is, almost certainly day by day, but sometimes moment by moment.
and, you know, still being a mom to two other kids who are um, in great need of their own nurturing and attention and, um, and a husband who, you know, is right in the middle of all that too. Um, so believing that God is um, present for my son and my children if I were not is a huge leap of faith and a huge um, place of growth for me personally in my own faith but also hopefully for them. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.